book of Daniel, and then some from the New Testament. First of all, in Daniel chapter 7, verse 8. Daniel chapter 7, verse 8. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. In verse 20, And concerning the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn which came up, and before which three fell, even that horn that had eyes and a mouth that spake great things, whose look was more stout than its fellows, I beheld, and the same horn made war with the saints and prevailed against them until the ancient of days came and judgment was given to the saints of the Most High and the time came that the saints possessed the kingdom. Thus he said, the fourth beast shall be a fourth kingdom upon earth, which shall be diverse from all the kingdoms, and shall devour the whole earth, and shall tread it down and break it in pieces. And as for the ten horns out of this kingdom, shall ten kings arise, and another shall arise after them. And he shall be diverse from the former, and he shall put down three kings, and he shall speak words against the Most High, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and he shall think to change the times and the law, and they shall be given into his hand until a time and times and half a time. Chapter 8, verse 9. Chapter 8, verse 9. And out of one of them came forth a little horn, which waxed exceeding great toward the south and toward the east and toward the glorious land. And it waxed great even to the host of heaven, and some of the host and of the stars it cast down to the ground and trampled upon them. Yea, it magnified itself even to the prince of the host, and it took away from him the continual burnt offering, and the place of his sanctuary was cast down. And the host was given over to it together with the continual burnt offering through transgression, and it cast down truth to the ground, and it did its pleasure and prospered. And verse 25, and through his, or we'll read verse 24 as well, and his power shall be mighty, but not by his own power, and he shall destroy wonderfully, and shall prosper and do his pleasure, and he shall destroy the mighty ones and the holy people, and through his policy he shall cause craft to prosper in his hand, and he shall magnify himself in his heart. And in their security shall he destroy many. He shall also stand up against the prince of princes, but he shall be broken without hand. And then in chapter 11, verse 21, chapter 11, verse 21, And in his place shall stand up a contemptible person to whom they had not given the honor of the kingdom, but he shall come in time of security, and shall obtain the kingdom by flatterers. And the overwhelming forces shall be overwhelmed from before him, and shall be broken, 
yea, also the prince of the covenant. And after the league made with him, he shall work deceitfully, for he shall come up and shall become strong with a small people. Lastly, chapter 12, verse 1. And at that time shall Michael stand up, the great prince who standeth for the children of thy people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation, even to that same time. And at that time thy people shall be delivered, every one that shall be found written in the book. And then <clears throat> one chapter in 2 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Now we beseech you, brethren, touching the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together unto him, to the end that ye be not quickly shaken from your mind, nor yet be troubled either by spirit or by word or by epistles from us, as that the day of the Lord is just at hand. Let no man beguile you in any wise, for it will not be except the falling away or apostasy come first. And the man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition, he that opposeth and exalteth himself against all that is called God, or that is worshipped, so that he sitteth in the temple of God, setting himself forth as God. Remember ye not that when I was yet with you I told you these things? And now ye know that which restraineth, to the end that he may be revealed in his own season. For the mystery of lawlessness doth already work. Only there is one that restraineth now until he be taken out of the way. And then shall be revealed the lawless one whom the Lord Jesus shall slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to naught by the manifestation of his coming, even he whose coming is according to the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders and with all deceit of unrighteousness for them that perish because they received not the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this cause God, did, God sendeth them a working of error that they should believe a lie that they all might be judged who believed not the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Now we'll... <coughs> well, now this evening we come uh, to this further study upon Antichrist, the Antichrist. You remember that last week we dealt with this figure, Antiochus Epiphanes, his personality... His, um, his character, his policies, and the history of his actual reign. And I trust that from it we learnt quite a lot, and I do trust that quite a lot of it is still in your mind, because I cannot this evening go back over um, that. Uh, for any who did not hear it, I suggest you listen to the tape because this evening I really want to go on and to uh, see if from the history and personality and policies of Antiochus Epiphanes we can discover 
anything that will give us a clue to the type of person that Antichrist will be and the kind of policies that he will pursue. So this evening is really an especial time. We are now going to interpret some of the facts and figures that we have given to you. Now the first thing is this, the whole period from Cambyses, the Persian king Cambyses in 530 BC to the beginning of the glorious era of the Maccabees in 165 BC has been predicted by Daniel. The whole thing was, in fact, the whole course of the, period of, the, of the history of that period was, in fact, minutely, in some particulars, predicted through the Spirit of God by Daniel. And we have it in the chapters uh, 11, uh, 10, 11, and 12. Now, so remarkably accurate, are those predictions, and there are no scholars who disagree on this, liberal, modernist, and fundamentalist, conservative, all are absolutely agreed that in the chapters in Daniel 10, 11, and 12, we have the most amazingly accurate history of this period from Cambyses, uh, in the Persian era, right through to the beginning um, of the Maccabees in 165. Where we part company is that we believe, and indeed there is very much evidence for it, that, that the, these chapters were given by the Spirit of God hundreds of years before the events took place. Whereas there are some with hardly any evidence at all, who, because it is so historically accurate, can only believe that it is history written up under the guise of prophecy. Now, in that you have, I think, a remarkable, um, uh, you have remarkable evidence for the accuracy of God's Word. Now, we're not going to spend time this evening on that accuracy, but I will leave on the table here this um, volume of Scroggie's work, The Unfolding Drama of Redemption, in which on one side of the column you have each verse of these chapters, and on the other side you have the historical fulfillment bit by bit. There's page after page after page of it. So if anyone wants to see it afterwards, they are um, more than welcome to look through that volume and see for themselves how amazingly accurate the uh, predictions were that Daniel gave. Even more remarkable, now here we come to the point, even more remarkable than the accuracy of those predictions, in my estimation, is the fact that the predictions finish in almost a pessimistic way. 
In other words, instead of carrying us into the glorious era of the Maccabees, when in actual fact the people of God were more free and independent than they had ever been since King Solomon, and when they recovered almost the whole extent of the territory that Solomon governed as sovereign, Instead of the, these predictions going on to that period and telling us something about that, they stop short. They stop short with this terrible figure of Antiochus Epiphanes. And they leave us with this dark, terrible tribulation such as has never before, it says, come upon the face of the earth. And all we have is this, at that time... Shall thy people be delivered, everyone who is written in the book? Now, that doesn't seem to me to be quite fair to the glorious period of the Maccabees, just to dismiss it with one sentence. Now, there must be a reason, therefore. There must be divine logic and divine reason why the predictions are so detailed, particularly for the period of Antiochus Epiphanes, from 175 BC, roughly for 10 years, why they should be so amazingly accurate and minute, and why they should stop short with Antiochus Epiphanes, with his final great purge. Now, I am led irresistibly to the conclusion that this period is meant to set forth in a prophetic way, the end. In other words, the Holy Spirit is taking a period of history and making it foreshadow something far more important at the end. Therefore, he takes up the facts and the figures that are prophetic of the end time and leaves the rest. So we don't have so much about the Maccabean period, because in actual fact, in our day, this great tribulation will not be divided from the coming of Christ by almost a century or more. In other words, his coming will come at the time of, the, uh, of that tribulation, and so we have again the remar remarkable evidence for the accuracy of God's word. When the Holy Spirit wants to take up history, it takes it up with a meaning. It's not just history. Therefore, we have this remarkable period. This period is thus set forth as prophetic of the end time of the whole of human history. And Antiochus Epiphanes becomes the symbol and the archetype in Scripture of the Antichrist. Thus, as with Christ's first advent, it was preceded by a corruption and compromising of God's covenant people, by a period, by this, by this um, uh, appearance of this Antichrist, this terrible figure, with his policy uh, or his purpose to destroy the people of God, and by much else, this period of great tribulation that lasted some seven years and for three and a half years was simply incredible. 
So we are led to believe that before the second advent of our Lord Jesus Christ, there will be a similar apostasy. There will be a slow process of corruption and compromise of God's covenant people, and then a sudden dramatic landslide of apostasy. A counterfeit church, the appearance of the man of sin, and the last terrible great tribulation in world history that will usher in the coming of the King of Kings. Now, this, I think, is seen by a comparison of the visions in Daniel concerning the little horn. Here on this chart here, we tried to get enough copies uh, for you, but we were unable to get them done uh, in time for tonight. Um, but here on this chart up here, we have a comparison of the different visions of, in the book of Daniel. Now, the thing I want you just to note is this. That first of all, in Daniel 2 and Daniel 7, you have the whole of world history portrayed from Babylon to Rome. And remember that in Scripture, the civilization we know today is included in the Roman Empire. It's looked upon as an extension and an expansion of the Roman Empire. Now, therefore, you and I are found in this period. Gold, silver, brass, iron and clay, the lion, the bear, the leopard, the monstrous beast, Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome. Now that's the period that is covered by the visions in Daniel 2 and Daniel 7. When we come to Daniel 8, we have another vision. Now here is a remarkable fact. Now we are looking at these visions in the light of the Antichrist. Not in the light of all they have to teach us, but in the light of the Antichrist himself, the little horn, the Antichrist. Now... Here you had that period. The, the third vision deals with half of that period. Only half of that period. And it particularly concentrates on a person called the literal horn, who is clearly Antiochus Epiphanes. But that's just confusing us. Because in the first, uh, um, the second vision of Daniel 7, also we have a little horn. But this little horn is not that little horn. Yet, when you look at them both, you find they're amazingly sim similar. They are the same people. But how can they be the same people? For this little horn arises out of the fourth empire at the very end of that empire's history. That is in our day. Yet this little horn comes out of Greece, out of the second of those periods, which has vanished, actually, when this has come onto the scene. Now, the third thing is this, that in Daniel 10 to 12, we have only a quarter of the period dealt with. So we have a reduction, first the whole period, then half of the period, then a quarter of the period. But the interesting thing is that the exact ratio given to the period in inverse proportions is the amount given to the Antichrist. So first, in the first vision, he's not even mentioned, the Antichrist. The second in Daniel 7, he is introduced and something is said about him. When we take only half of the period, quite a lot is said about him. When we take a quarter of the period, it's almost exclusively upon him. 
and a most remarkable fact. Now, what does that lead us to see? It leads us, I think, again, to see that, in fact, we are to understand in the personality and the policies of Antiochus Epiphanes, we are to understand something of the character, personality, and policies of this final Antichrist. In other words, Scripture is seeking somehow to instruct us through a historical figure concerning someone who is yet to come. I wonder if I'm clear on that. When we come to Revelation 13, then we find that we have features of all these four uh, um, uh, beasts, beasts or, or, or portions of history. These four great empires, they're all condensed into a composite creature. Now, that's why I've only put dots there. In actual fact, this line here should go right out to here, where we are. <laughs> Because, in fact, all this is condensed. The whole thing is condensed into this modern civilization at the end, the one great beast, a mixture of lion, bear, leopard, and monster. And with him, we find a second beast, the false prophet, or the lamb beast. Someone who has two horns and is like a lamb and who speaks or roars like a dragon. So here you have two beasts. Then when we begin to look at these, uh, here we find we have the dragon, the beast, the false prophet, and the harlot. And I put under there the man of sin. Now that's just very simply um, a, a, a very quick survey of this person called the little horn. He is not in fact called the little horn in the book of Revelation. He's called the little horn in the book of Daniel. But in the book of Revelation, we've found him. Or we shall find him, I trust, uh, as we go on uh, this evening. I hope, anyway, that that makes it just a little clearer. Now, on the other side of this, I have um, drawn another... I have drawn another chart. This is even more involved than the other one. But I trust that it will help you. It's the book of Revelation, the Antichrist. It should follow on from the other one. Now, the book of Revelation, in fact, as far as the Antichrist, now we're viewing this in the light of the Antichrist again. We, we are going to go back and see what we can discover about this man Antiochus Epiphanes uh, and what, it was what he's going to teach us concerning this. When we come to the book of Revelation, the Antichrist and the book of Revelation, we find some very interesting things. First, we find we have in fact got four great figures. We have the great red dragon in Revelation 12.3. Now, the great red dragon, dragon has ten horns, seven heads, and seven crowns. Will you all remember that? Ten horns, seven heads, and seven crowns. Quite simple. He is identified as Satan in Revelation 12, 9. So we have no further trouble. If the scripture tells us who it is, we implicitly believe it. There's no, further, no trouble to go any further. He is that old serpent, the devil. So the dragon, we know who he is. He's identified. In Revelation 11:7, 7, we have the beast out of the abyss, 
If you read Revelation uh, 11 verse 7, you will read that a beast comes up out of the abyss and he makes war with the two witnesses and he kills them. And for 42 months a reign of terror is, is uh, exercised over the earth. Now that 42 months is three and a half years. Now, as far as we know, certainly scripture identifies this beast out of the abyss with the beast out of the sea. And if you read Revelation 17, 8, you will discover that this third creature, the beast out of the sea, is identified with the beast out of the abyss. Now, I've got something more to say about him in one moment. I shall come back to him. Now, when we come to Revelation 13 and verse 1, we read that um, John saw a beast coming up out of the sea. Coming up out of the sea. Now, this beast is a mixture of lion, bear, leopard, and the monster of Daniel 7. He has ten horns, seven heads, and seven crowns. In exactly, he exactly corresponds with the great red dragon, which is rather interesting. The fourth beast of Daniel 7 has ten horns, but hasn't got seven heads. He has ten horns, but he's only got one head. But if you look, you will find that the four beasts of Daniel 7, the first had one head, that is the lion, the second had one head, that was the bear, the third had four heads, that was the leopard. That makes six heads. And the monster, the last fourth beast, has only one head. So in actual fact, this beast out of the sea is the, the, um, the four beasts of Daniel's vision. He's got seven heads. He's got the ten horns, and he's got the seven heads, and he has the seven crowns. Now, one of those heads is killed. And it then is revived. It's healed. That's the word used. And it comes back as an eighth head. Now the figure eight in the Bible is the figure of resurrection. It comes back seemingly from the dead. As the eighth head and is called the beast. In fact, although the beast itself is a great system, this eighth head is called the beast, the very embodiment of the whole system. Now, this, bee, this beast, if you compare Revelation 13.3 with 17.11, you will find out is the Antichrist. And his mark is 666. Now, of course, I think you all know that the figure 6 means symbolically in Scripture, man. And 6 squared, as Erich Sauer points out, is 36. And if you add 1 plus 2 plus 3 plus 4 plus 5 plus 6, mm. 1 plus 34 plus 35 plus 36, it equals 666, which is all very remarkable. It's also a very remarkable study <laughs> in its own way to discover the numerical value of names. Nero's name, Caesar Nero, is numerical value in Hebrew, is 666. So were two other Roman emperors. So was Hitler's name. That's why the Jews in the, la the first part of uh, um, the 
earlier part of this century, why the Jews feared so greatly Adolf Hitler. Because Hitler's name, reduced into Hebrew, had the numerical value of 666. Therefore, Jews, Orthodox Jews throughout Poland and throughout Russia, greatly feared the figure of Hitler. It is, in fact, extraordinary how you can get 666 into all kinds of things. But is that really so remarkable? Because we're told it is the figure of a man. Not of a particular man, but of man. And 666 is man complete. It is the trinity. Everything that there is, 666. Therefore, um, it is not only the figure of man in all his fullness and flowering, the flowering of his genius, the flowering of his intelligence, the flowering of his own resources and so on, his own independence of God, but it must also be understood to be the number of a particular man who will be the embodiment of mankind at the end of this age. And that man is the anti. Now, is this Antichrist to be identified with the beast out of the abyss? Early Christians believed, as we shall come a little later in the study, that the Antichrist was a spirit that came back from hell. Uh, there was, in the days of the early church, not only, not only amongst Christians and Jews, but amongst Gentiles, a very strong belief that Nero would return from the dead and that he would return to persecute both Christian and Jew, and Jew in a way that had never before been known. That is only an idea, a belief that was held. Nero did not return. But this beast that comes out of the abyss, you must understand that this abyss is the term used of the place of departed spirits, those cut off from God. And therefore the thought was that somehow or other this Antichrist is the, the resurrection of someone out of hell, someone who is hellish. Well, we'll come to that in a moment. Now, the next thing about the beast out of the sea is that the dragon, the devil, gives him his power and his throne. Now, there is no more remarkable word in the whole of Scripture. Never at any time is it recorded in the whole of God's word that the devil gave to any man his power and his throne. But this incarnation of evil at the end of human history will be given both the power and the throne of the devil. He gives him his authority. In other words, the devil commits himself, to put it crudely, lock, stock and barrel to this person. The last thing about the beast is that the harlot rides him. The harlot that we understand and know to be the counterfeit church in the book of Revelation is actually carried by this beast. Remarkable as it may seem. In fact, in the end, the Antichrist only uses the harlot for as long as he wants her. He destroys her in the end. The judgment of God upon the counterfeit church is that she is in fact destroyed by the Antichrist at the very last phase of the tribulation. He turns round upon her and destroys her. 
Now, the last beast in the book of Revelation that we need to consider is in Revelation 13, verse 11, and it is the beast out of the earth. It follows immediately on the beast out of the sea. Now, this beast out of the earth has two horns like a lamb and speaks like a dragon. And he is identified as the false prophet. You can look that up in Revelation 16.13 or 19.20. His function is to support the former beast with signs and miracles and lying wonders. His function is to induce mankind to worship the beast and the Antichrist, by this tremendous display of supernatural power and wisdom. His function is to cause all mankind to be registered in a commercial way, which means that no, everyone's got to be um, read, registered in the kind of trade registry. You're not allowed to, to buy or sell unless you are registered. You have the mark of the beast. Now, that may not seem much to you, but it is only trade unionism and a closed shop gone mad. That's all. It simply means that this thing will spread to such an extent that unless you've got a, um, a membership card... You cannot live. It's impossible to live. You can't buy and you can't sell. In order to actually live at all, you've got to be in this system. So this false prophet's function is to, to encourage and cause all to be registered, uh, which it's called in the scripture, to have the mark of the beast in the right hand or the forehead. And finally, to eliminate all who refuse to worship or register. Not a very happy subject. Well, now, that is um, a survey not only of the book of Daniel, but of the book of Revelation in the light of the Antichrist. What does Antichrist mean? Well, it means against Christ or instead of Christ. It, that's literally what the word means, against Christ or instead of Christ. Probably both meanings are right. It means really one who sets himself up in Christ's place and by doing so opposes him. Get it? He sets himself up in Christ's place and by doing so actually opposes him. Antichrist ought not to be confused with false Christs, literally pseudo-Christs. That is not the Antichrist. The Antichrist is different to the false Christ, who comes saying they are Christ. Antichrist is someone who does not say he is Christ, but sets himself up as a Christ, another Christ, of an altogether different kind, and thereby opposes him. We find uh, Antichrist called by a variety of names in Scripture. He is called in 1 John 2, 18, if you wish to look at it, the Antichrist. We're told in 1 John 2 and verse 18 that this is the Antichrist that cometh. As ye heard that Antichrist cometh, even now have there arisen many Antichrists. But it is the Antichrist that cometh. Now, in the letters of John, that is the only time we have the actual name Antichrist mentioned in Scripture. And there he mentions it a number of times. 
Another title is the man of sin. The man of sin. That is 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 3 where <clears throat> Antichrist is called the man of sin. He is also called in that same verse the son of perdition. The son of perdition. He is also called in the next verse he that opposeth God. And it's very interesting, this, because it says here, he that opposeth and exalteth himself against all that is called God or that is worshipped. In other words, it's not just the true God, but everything uh, in the realm of religious things. <coughs> Then he is called in the same chapter, verse 8, the lawless one. The lawless one. That is, he is a law to himself. He is outside of the law that all others have to obey, and certainly outside of the law of God. In Revelation 11, 7, comparing it with 17, Revelation 17, 8, and 11, he is called the beast. Now, I have made mention of that here in this chart. And then finally, he's called in Daniel, chapter 7, verse 8, and elsewhere in Daniel, the little horn. Now, these are, in fact, the titles given to the Antichrist. The Antichrist, the man of sin, the son of perdition, he that opposeth God, the lawless one, the beast, the little horn. Is Antichrist a system or a person or an influence? What is he? Well, if we turn to 1 John chapter 2 and verse 18, we read, Little children, it is the last hour. As ye heard that Antichrist cometh, even now have there arisen many Antichrists. Chapter 4, verse 3, And every spirit that confesseth not Jesus is not of God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, whereof ye have heard that it cometh, and now it is in the world already. And then 2 John, the second letter of John, verse 7, For many deceivers are gone forth into the world, even they that confess not that Jesus Christ cometh in the flesh. This is the deceiver and the antichrist. Is antichrist a person? a system, or an influence. He is all three. That may seem rather strange to put it like that, that he is in fact all three. Supremely, the Antichrist is the person who heads a system. He is a superhuman figure. He embodying man's genius and brilliance. He is a demonic leader of the peoples. A demonic leader of the peoples. He is the devil's Christ. Can't underline that enough. He is Satan's desire of all nations. He is in fact the one that the evil one is setting forth before mankind as his last great attempt to win the whole of mankind to himself instead of Christ. Antichrist is not only a person, he is also a system. <clears throat> and it's, he's called the beast in the book of Revelation. 
And it is a great, <coughs> a great political, economic, religious system. And it is, as he is, the flowering and fruiting of the mystery of lawlessness. Now, if you turn to um, 2 Thessalonians, chapter 2 and verse 7, you will read, for the mystery of lawlessness doth already work. If you read 1 John 4, verse 3, we read, the spirit of Christ is in the world, of Antichrist is in the world already. Now, this great system that is the Antichrist, which is coming at the end of world history, is the flowering and fruiting of the mystery of lawlessness and the spirit of Antichrist, which has always been in the world from the beginning. When Cain slew his brother Abel, that was the mystery of lawlessness at work. That was the spirit of Antichrist at work, trying to destroy the seed of the woman. And as you go right the way through human history, right the way from Abel, you will discover that this mystery of lawlessness, this spirit of Antichrist, has always been just under the surface, ready to break out at any time. Now, it is a principle with God that everything must ripen to its completion, to its fulfillment. Just as the church and kingdom of God comes to its full fruition, so alongside of it comes to its full fruition evil. That's why the Lord Jesus said, let the wheat grow and the tares. Let them both ripen to the harvest. In other words, we must not just think that these things are far-fetched, fantastic. Somehow or other they're fanciful. Not at all. It's absolutely scriptural. We are to expect in world history a process and a progress of good and of evil alongside of each other. One ending in the bride being raptured into the presence of Christ and the other in the destruction by the Lord Jesus Christ and his angels at his coming. Now, if that's so, then we must understand that this great system called Antichrist is, in fact, the product of the dragon. Now, that is why the dragon wears, has ten horns, seven heads, and seven crowns, and why the beast out of the, out of the sea has ten horns, seven heads, and seven crowns. It is, in fact, an identification in a minute way with Satan. The dragon is called the great red dragon. The beast is a scarlet-covered beast. There is again an amazing identification between the two. This system is energized by Satan. It is the product of his creative ability and energy. Who is Antichrist himself? Is he a mere man with evil ideas? Or is he a man possessed by evil spirits, perhaps a legion of them? Or is he a man possessed by the devil himself? Or is he an incarnation of the devil? Who is the Antichrist? I am not sure that from Scripture we can satisfy ourselves completely. 
It has been the belief of God's people from antiquity that Antichrist will be an incarnation of the devil. An actual incarnation of the devil himself. Just as the Lord Jesus Christ was the incarnation of God. But <clears throat> there are difficulties uh, over that view. Um, for instance, we have the word son of perdition. Now, this word son of perdition is used of Judas Iscariot. We read in John 17 and uh, verse um, 12, I guarded them while I was with them. I kept them in thy name which thou hast given me and I guarded them and not one of them perished but the son of perdition. In other words, Judas Iscariot is described as the son of perdition, the son of destruction. And this man of sin at the end is called the, the son, not a son, but the son of perdition. The man of sin. Now, does that help us at all if we turn to 2 Thessalonians? Uh, chapter 2 and verse 9, we read, whose coming is according to the working or energy of Satan. Now, this is the scripture upon which some have built their uh, belief that the, that the Antichrist is an incarnation of the devil. Just as the Lord Jesus' coming was by the power of the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit came upon Mary and the Lord Jesus was conceived of the Spirit of God, so uh, they say we are to understand that Antichrist will be a conceiving by the power of the evil one, whose coming is according to the energy or working of Satan. However, we don't have to just understand those words in that way. It can mean that his power, his ability, is um, wholly dependent upon uh, Satan's power and authority. And we read in Revelation 13 that the dragon gives him his power and his throne and his authority. So we don't have to believe that the Antichrist is the incarnation of the devil himself. Nevertheless, we do have to say this, that it would be wholly in keeping with the devil to ape God. <clears throat> the devil has always aped God. He's always imitated him. Everything God has done, he's imitated. He is the master of counterfeit. And right the way through human history, we have the counterfeit works of Satan alongside the true works of God. Therefore, it would not be unlike Satan as the great masterpiece of his brain, of his intelligence, to, to as it were, bring forth this Antichrist as the very incarnation of himself. Well, I don't know. Who was Judas? What did it mean when it said at the Last Supper, and the devil entered? That may not be incarnation in the sense that we understand the Lord Jesus to be God the Son. But it could come very near in practical expression to an incarnation. That the devil actually stepped into Judas and possessed him in every bit of his being. Now my dear friends, do remember this. The devil is not God. He is not omnipresent. 
People have got, some Christians have got the strangest ideas about the devil. They look upon him as a kind of God who is everywhere present, omnipresent, just like God. God is present in Shanghai. He's present here in Richmond. He's present in New York. He is omnipresent. The whole world is in him. We live and move and have our being in him. That's not so of the devil. I don't suppose that the person in this room has had a personal visit of the devil. If you had, my dear friend, you'd know it. Most of us are dealt with by lower minions in the hierarchy of evil. The devil himself confines himself to certain uh, uh, people, certain uh, uh, works. Uh, but uh, when the devil, it says, the devil as a person entered into Judas, some terrible change came about in that man's constitution. He sold himself to the devil and became in that instant somehow or other almost an incarnation of the devil. He was possessed of the devil. Now to be possessed by demons is not to be possessed by the devil. To be possessed by evil spirits is not to be possessed by the devil. The devil is not everywhere present. The devil can only be in one person at a time. But he can, uh, he can uh, uh, obtain and, and possess and, and control thousands by his hierarchy of evil. So much for that. If we read uh, Revelation 13, verse 4, I think we've already touched on that. It's where Revelation 13, verse 4 They worshipped the dragon because he gave his authority unto the beast. And they worshipped the beast. Or again in Daniel chapter 8 verse 24, we read that earlier this evening where it says, um, rather remarkably actually, it says this, And his power shall be mighty, but not by his own power. His power shall be mighty, but not by his own power. Now, it is quite amazing to note the comparison between Christ and the Antichrist in Scripture. And I can do no better than read to you a paragraph from Erich Sauer's book, The Triumph of the Crucified. Now, just listen to this remarkable comparison between Christ and the Antichrist. First, his origin. Christ came down out of heaven... The Antichrist comes up out of the abyss. His coming. Christ came in the Father's name. Antichrist comes in his own name. His nature. Christ is the Holy One and embodies the truth. Antichrist is the lawless one and embodies the lie. Christ is the mystery of godliness. He is the Redeemer. Antichrist is the mystery of lawlessness. He is the destroyer. There are scriptures for all this. Christ, the Son of God, is the effulgent of his Father. Antichrist, the Son of Perdition, is the exact likeness of the, de of the dragon, his activity. Christ served three and a half years in Israel. Antichrist lords it over the world for three and a half years. His resuscitation. Christ is he who's been raised from the dead. Antichrist is he whose deadly wound has been healed and comes back to life. His sphere. Christ has the church, Jerusalem, the bride. Antichrist has the world empire, great Babylon, the harlot. 
Christ builds out of living materials and organism. Antichrist builds out of dead materials and organization. The Church of Christ has a cup of blessing which we bless. The world city of Antichrist has the cup of fornication in which it gets drunk. His destiny, Christ leads his own into eternal life. Antichrist brings his followers into destruction and judgment. Christ was himself exalted in heaven. Antichrist is cast into the lake of fire. Now, that's an amazing thing, isn't it? That comparison in the Word of God between uh, Christ and the Antichrist. Now, what can we learn from the intertestament period and particularly from Antiochus Epiphanes about the Antichrist? Now, we have surveyed something in general about the Antichrist, something about Daniel, something about Revelation. What can we actually learn from last week's study uh, on the personality and character um, of the Antichrist. Satan's object is to create such a mess in the covenant people of God, complicating things by every possible means to such a degree that God will give up and Satan will be able to prevent Christ's coming and his own final undoing. You must remember that Satan knows that he was cast out judicially by the death of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. For the Lord Jesus said, Now is the judgment of the prince of this world. Now is the prince of this world cast out. That was the judicial sentence of death God passed upon the dragon, upon, upon Satan. And it was passed in the moment that the Lord Jesus Christ finished the work God gave him to do on the cross. The devil knows that. He did everything in his power to deflect the Lord Jesus Christ from that cross. He even, I believe, pressurized him to such an extent that if angels hadn't appeared from God, he would have died in the Garden of Gethsemane. But angels appeared to strengthen him. And he went through to the cross and died on the cross and finished the work that God had given him to do. When that moment came, it was as if a shattering bell rang through hell. It was just as if something pierced through the very heart of Satan himself. He knew for the first time in world history his end had come. Now he'd only got a short time, and in that time he's got to do everything possible. He can't stop his undoing. Uh, he can't stop the sentence that's passed, but he can prevent it being carried out. Thus, you see, from that moment onwards, the devil's great objective has been somehow or other to prevent the coming back of Christ. When Christ comes back, the judicial sentence passed on Satan and upon this whole world system will be carried out. Therefore, everything in his armory he will use to prevent the Lord Jesus from coming back. Everything. Now, one of the most wonderful things of all is that once the Lord Jesus died on the cross, then he passed beyond Satan's power. He actually went down into hell. 
He went down into hell for three days into the very domain of Satan, and there he preached to the spirits that were in prison. And then he arose on the third day, and Satan could do nothing. A great big stone over the door, a whole cohort of soldiers, and he was powerless. And then the Lord Jesus ascended to take his seat at the Father's right hand beyond the reach of Satan. Satan cannot touch the Lord Jesus ever again. He has not only finished the work that God the Father gave him to do, but he has ascended to a position far above all principality and power where the devil cannot even touch him. So now the devil knows the sentence is not only judicially given, but the one who, in whose hand the authority lies to carry out the sentence is beyond his power to touch. So what does he do? Well, dear friends, he's got his bride. He can't get the bridegroom, so he'll get the bride. It's as simple as that. He can't touch the bridegroom, so he will touch the bridegroom's body. And he will do everything within his power to destroy that body, to divide it, to paralyze it, to compromise it, to corrupt it, to make it a tool of himself, to come in himself and master it, so that God has to, even God, has to draw back in horror and say, this thing is such a mess that I cannot fulfill my purpose. And this will give the devil some kind of respite. Antichrist, Antichrist is Satan's last great energetic and brilliant thrust, his last great operation, his masterpiece to prevent the coming of Christ. He has worked down through the centuries, and now in our day, if in fact we are at the end, <laughs> of time, in the end time, then we are going to see this last great thrust of Satan into which he will throw every reserve he's got to somehow uh, or other stop the Lord Jesus from coming back. By that period and what precedes it immediately, that period of the Antichrist's appearance and what precedes it his appearance, to attempt to corrupt the church, to, to um, somehow use it as a satanic tool so that the church itself becomes satanized. Indeed, to create a false counterfeit church from which God must withdraw in horror. That is his plan to simulate signs and wonders. And somehow, by those signs and wonders, to, if it is possible, confuse the believers and delude the unbelievers. And also to eliminate, annihilate, destroy the true church of God and intimidate all those who are on the fringe or in the shallows. Now, my dear friend, the greatest reason why you should go right on with the Lord is that you won't be on the fringe or in the shallows. Because I can tell you that if we are in the end time, there'll be no one left in the fringe or in the shallows. 
You're either right in, fully clothed, in the deep end, uh, and there's no other alternative, or you'll be swept out. That's why we have this little bit of time left to us, if I am right. If the general feeling amongst us Christians is right today, then we have very little time left to us in which to grow and go on with Christ and to be established before that day actually dawns. Now, I believe that that's very, very important indeed. Because Satan's objective is to wipe out the true church and to so subject it to the fires of persecution that most of those who haven't gone far enough will be intimidated and will withdraw. Thus the whole battle is centered upon the church, upon the true church. It's building up, it's completion. As I've said, the bridegroom is beyond Satan's power to touch, but the bride, his body, Satan turns to. That final great onslaught has been prepared for over centuries, just as in the intertestament period. When Satan finally brought Antiochus Epiphanes to the scene, it wasn't a sudden thought. He had prepared for it carefully over some two centuries. All over the promised land there were um, there were Gentile centers, Hellenic cities, which were, like, as it were, centers of Gentile culture and thought and tradition right within the land of the promised people, of the promised land of the covenant people. There were, there were the people of God who had been Hellenized. Many of them had lost their distinctiveness and much else. They'd become as Greek as the Greeks. The only difference was, difference was that they believed in a person called Jehovah. That was the only thing. You could tell no difference. They, they ate Greek food. They spoke the Greek language. They dressed like Greeks. They behaved like Greeks. This was the, the battle over centuries preceding the appearance of Antiochus Epiphanes. That great final onslaught, therefore, when it came, had been prepared for carefully. For the devil knows that this is his last great chance. He is not going to leave a stone unturned for that day. Now, dear children of God, you and I are in the same great battle. The devil, over centuries, has been preparing quietly and insidiously and consistently for this final great onslaught of his at the end, in which he hopes to destroy the true church, to just simply eliminate it and corrupt all that remain so that somehow or other uh, he may prevent the Lord Jesus from returning. In other words, what he wants to do is this, rock the church from within, destroying the heavenliness, the spirituality, the divine character of, its, of God's people. So that when that moment comes when the, the great impact of the onslaught hits the church, it crumples in a minute. It has not got the resilience, it hasn't got the resources to stand up against the devil. Now, dear children of God, uh, isn't that absolutely what has happened? Why look around us? Just look what is happening in Christian circles. Just see where we are today. Liberalism, modernism has done its work. Worldliness has done its work. Superficiality and shallowness has done its work. Worldly methods, 
Babylonian things, they're all right inside the church. Why the devil's idea is to make the church a human society, humanly sustained, humanly governed, humanly energized, so that when it comes to the end, by human power, he strikes it, and it's gone. It's just gone. He completely takes it over. It is going to be the greatest takeover bid in history. And it's being carefully planned. Carefully and amazingly planned. I say how successful Satan's preparations are over the centuries can be seen in this simple thing by looking at the churches around us and looking at the churches in the New Testament. It's as simple as that. You look around and see today in Europe or in the world what is called churches and then look into the Word of God and see what is called a church, you will see an essential difference. And that's just how successful Satan's been. He has brought in something Babylonian, something essentially of this world, something that belongs to the arm of the flesh, something of another order and another, from another sphere. He's insinuated it into the things of God, and it goes by the name of Christ. And when the day comes, that thing will prove to be what it is, traitorous. Absolutely traitorous. It'll go back to roost where it belongs in the arms of Satan. For that takeover attempt, he is preparing apostates and traitors, not just in general, but as people. Now, don't think I'm being fanciful in this thing, but he is preparing apostates and traitors ready to sell their souls to anything in this world in order just to get power and to be something in the church, ready to compromise in the day of tribulation. Now, you will remember in our studies on Antiochus Epiphanes how remarkable it was that this very, very godly high priest, Onias III, what a tremendous man he was. It's said of Simon the Just and Onias that they both prophesied, they were prophets, uh, but Jason was the man prepared by the devil. Onias was actually high priest. But it was Jason, Onias was deposed, and Jason was put in his place. Jason was so Hellenized that he didn't even use his name Joshua, but he took a Greek name and called himself Jason. He became the very tool of the Antichrist. He did every single thing to further the policies of Antiochus Epiphanes and to somehow corrupt and compromise the whole people of God. It was veritably the man of sin sitting in the temple. And Menelaus, the next one after him, was as bad as he. These men had been carefully prepared by the devil for this great takeover bid. Now, my dear friends, what I'm saying is not just so fantastic and fanciful as it may seem to some of you. Do you realize what happened to China? Do you realize that right back in 1926, the leader of the Chinese YMCA was an undercover communist? He was a so-called Christian and an undercover communist. And through all those years, he compiled notes of all the great Christian leaders in China so that when communism took over, he was the archdeacon. 
who somehow or other just, just led the way, led the traitors into the very heart of the work of God. Do you know that when Brother Nee was uh, brought to trial, Watchman Nee, he was accused of capitalism, he was accused of exploiting the masses, he was accused of embezzlement of funds over 25 years, he was accused of adultery with 100 women. The charges against him ran to 28 full scat pages. But my dear friends, who was it who stood in the dock against him but people from his own company? And women came forward and said he committed adultery with him that he's never even seen from his own company. So powerful was the, was the force of evil, so like a flood did it come upon the people, so did they lose their intelligence and their minds, that somehow else in sheer fear they were prepared to say anything to get away with their skin. This Dr. Wu, who was the leader of the Chinese YMCA, was the reason that Wang Ming Dao is in prison, he's the reason that Botchman Nee is in prison, he is the reason for many others, the most godly people, you can read it all in here. I just read you one little thing. Listen to this. All members of the little flock in Shanghai were then divided into groups and put through an indoctrination course. Other evangelistic workers, associates of Brother Nee, went around Shanghai acquainting the churches with the sins of the anti-revolutionary Watchman Nee. On the 15th of April, the little flock church, having achieved a rebirth, was completely reorganized and formally joined the three self-movement coming under communist domination. This was a major victory for the leaders of the movement, but only achieved by strong government support. Now, I, I mention Watchman Ee because all of you know him. You know the people connected with him. You would say, well, they're just, we're just the same. How could it happen to them? My dear friends, it happened to them. It's not fanciful what I'm saying. It's absolute truth. The thing will happen in Europe in the end because we shall lose our sovereignty as a nation. And once we go in somehow into this mess that's called the common market and somehow become involved more and more in things that we can no longer draw out of, so in the end you and I will see the same things happening amongst us. Well, there's nine o'clock. So really I'm supposed to end here. Um, you see, it's really, it's terrible. I read to you just another little portion from this book by Harolan Popov. You remember the Bulgarian pastor who came to us, who for 13 years, four months, was in prison. And this is what he says about his trial. The first one on the stand was the Baptist pastor Nikola Mikhailov. His hearing lasted six hours. He was the one who had been the most transformed and the one ready to say not only what they wished him to say but anything which he himself thought would enhance his own case before the judge. Actually, Pastor Syapkov, who is the leader of all the evangelical congregations in Bulgaria, should have been the first to take the stand, but evidently the Secret Service didn't quite trust him to humble himself under the prosecuting attorney's revision. Pastor Mikhailov proved to be an important witness against all of the pastors, especially against Pastor Zyapkov. His testimony would have been sufficient to condemn us to death, even if we had not confessed that we were guilty. 
can you believe it? That that man who worked with Halal and Popov and all those others for years in evangelistic campaigns was prepared to save his own skin by telling lies. Send the whole lot of them to death in order that he could save his own life. A man who preached the gospel. Now we're not talking just about liberals and modernists. Dr. Wu was a liberal. He was the vice president at one time of the World Council of Churches. But you see, we're talking there about evangelicals. Now, that's what I mean by Satan's great takeover attempt. He's preparing for it. There's only one thing that will get us through. Only one thing, and that's spiritual character. Professionalism will just go by the board. If people are in this job for the profession, just what they get out of it, they'll be prepared to do anything to save their profession, to save their skin. But if the spiritual character there, they cannot deny the truth that is in them. Can they? Wang Mingdao, when he was in prison, was such a broken man, so brainwashed, that he confessed and denied his Lord, and confessed exactly what they wanted. And he went out of the prison, a broken man, he was allowed to go home. And all the Christians who saw him, and I knew one or two who saw him at that time, they said, whenever we saw him, he wept. And he wrote over the door, Peter denied his Lord. And he used to sit in a chair and look at it and weep and weep. And one day after nine months freedom, he couldn't bear it. No longer he said to his wife, my dear, I can't bear it anymore. I'm going back. And he went back to prison. And to the surprise of the communist secret service, he said, I'm so sorry, I withdraw my confession. And they opened the cell door and put him back in prison. And he's been there ever since with his wife. And he's happier inside than out. He lost his peace. That's true spiritual character. It doesn't mean that you don't fail. It means that there's something so true in you that you can't deny it. Now that's the kind of thing that I believe is meant by this great takeover attempt by the devil. We may well learn from the policy of Antiochus Epiphanes uh, that Antichrists will be similarly enlightened. Antiochus' policy was an enlightened policy. Its key word was unity. Unity. Political unity. Economic unity. Religious unity. In order to reunify all the areas under his control. And in the end, his dream was a great pan-federation of the whole Mediterranean and of Asia, uh, bound together by a common cultural uh, heritage by the same language, and so on and so forth. His idea was to combat war. Actually, he was a great warrior. But his idea was, finally, by Hellenism, to combat war and ban it. An enlightened policy. Unity. And anything that, in his estimation, stood against that reunification was evil and must be eliminated for the common good. His thought was, by reunifying all the areas under his control, and finally, perhaps, uh, creating a pan-federation of all the states, they would be able to um, pool their common resources for the good of all. Don't you think that has a modern ring about it? That's just the key word of today. Unity, unity, unity. I don't know if any of you read your newspapers, but if you do and if you ever listen to the radio or watch television, surely you can't 
missed the unmistakable signs. The key word today is unity. Can we possibly be politically one? Can we enter into a political unity, an economic unity? Can we pool our common resources in such a way that it is for the good of all? Can we, by our reuni reunifying of all, ban war altogether? Such will be the policy, in my estimation, of this Antichrist, not some fanatical religionist, not some queer crank. I've always, I've never been able to understand how Hitler rose to his power. He always struck me as a man off his head. But I'm not sure that the Antichrist who's coming will be a man off his head. Antiochus was an affable, genial democrat. Popular, a great benefactor of all the cultural centers in the ancient world that came under his control or into the uh, sphere of his influence. Doesn't that give us a key to the kind of man that this man will be? The end of time, some man who is a cultured, refined man, a man who wants to defend the arts, a man who somehow or other wants unity above all persons, ban war. That's the kind of man, it seems to me, that this Antichrist is going to be. His watchword is unity. <coughs> Political unity is everywhere at present under discussion, behind the scenes, and not so much behind the scenes. Economic unity is everywhere being discussed. You know the reason why we as a country are considering going to the common market. It's not political unity, believe me. It's simply the fact that we will be outpriced of the market, of the world market. Unless we go. It's, econ it's the economic issues that are forcing this nation as a judgment from God into this terrible thing. Otherwise, we shall lose our jobs. Hold standard of our living was going to go down. You see what's happening? Economic unity. But you know, don't think for a moment that this is just a 20th century phenomenon. Napoleon dreamt great dreams of a united Europe. From Madrid, from the Atlantic to the Urals, he dreamed, he dreamt of a huge vast united empire and that's why Christians in the early part of the last century were convinced that Napoleon was the Antichrist they said here he is here he is just seems clear that Napoleon is the Antichrist his whole idea seemed to be absolutely Antiochus epiphanies all over again and then again of course we've had Hitler now don't just dismiss Hitler Hitler's plans was not only for a kind of great Germanic empire uh, but beyond that, it was a kind of association of other uh, recognized races. There were some nations and races that were sub-human, uh, and they were to be given menial jobs. But the idea was, again, from the Atlantic to the Urals, a common empire. One great empire. Again, they were Stalin's great objective. And it still is the objective of the present leaders of the Kremlin is a world empire. Unity. Unity through communism. This, the proletariat, the workers of the world uniting. This kind of thing that will stretch over the whole world. It's not just so strangely in the future. It's something that has been bubbling under the surface for some time. 
It will surprise you perhaps to know that Sir Winston Churchill's great and last dream was of a United States of Europe. His, all his last energies were bent towards this one great end. Why? Why? Because he said we must ban war. Somehow or other we've got to get war out of uh, the European scene. How? United States of Europe. Now we've got the common market. Political unity, it's objective. Economic unity, it's objective. And religious unity, it's objective. Well, I think we better end there tonight. There's a lot more we could say. I'd like to speak about religious unity, and I will do. Uh, and I'd like to speak about um, the harlot and the false beast, and I'd like to speak a little bit more about the true church and the tribulation that I believe will be occasioned by its resistance to the Lord. And I want also to ask a question. I want to ask whether, in fact, in the world at the present time, uh, the Antichrist, uh, whether he, the Antichrist is in fact here. I have a strong feeling that he is here. Unbeknown to us, somewhere in the world, uh, the figure of Antichrist is but a baby. He's but a baby at present, but he's growing. And there are some reasons why I say that. And when it comes to it, I'll just put my reasons before you. As you know, I'm very careful about... Uh, I think we don't know who it is, but um, I wouldn't be surprised if, in fact, we are not going to see them. And it's not fanciful again. Already over part of the world, a terrible scourge has, has come. And how much longer we've got, we don't know. But I can tell you one thing. These things can happen in a generation. Within just a few years, a landslide can take place. And when I see some of the things happening in this country, I wonder whether we've got the moral character anymore to stand up to anything. Yeah. You see, people who just couldn't care less about other people, who couldn't care do It reminds me of the freedom fighters in Hungary. So demoralized was that nation that people went out and gave them poison in the coffee and watched them die in agony. Not a few, but hundreds of them. That was the kind of traitorous thing that happened in the background. That hasn't happened before in this country, but I wonder whether it will. Whether somehow our character has become so demoralized now that, uh, that it could happen. Well, we're, we're dealing with serious things. And it's as well for us to know them. <coughs> that these things are foretold. Now, we've ended on a rather somber and, and, and sad note. But I think we better just say this. Let's remember again. It's jumping, as it were, quite a few points. But just let's remember this word in the book of Daniel. Until. Until. You see, the whole point of the scriptural prophecy is this. That things will get worse and worse and worse and darker and darker and darker. And then suddenly... He'll come. At the darkest point, he'll come. But we're least expecting him. Well, I mean, the great thing is, who wants to be in a world? Tell me, who wants to be in a world who is inspired by the great red dragon? That is the embodiment of the beast with ten horns and seven heads. 
who of which Antichrist is the very head, a harlot riding on its back, and a false prophet. Prophet, sir. Who wants to be part of that kind of world? If you're a child of God, surely everything within you reacts against it. Would you save your skin to be in that? Never, surely. By my dear friends, I'm sure that at that time it will be so terrible, I think it'd be better to get out of it. And I can't help wondering if that's what it means when it says in the book of Revelation, blessed are those who die from henceforth. Blessed are those who die from henceforth. It seems to me we take that in the burial service to mean anyone who dies now, but it doesn't mean that if you look. It says blessed are those who die from henceforth, from that point of the tribulation. In other words, it's a merciful way out of the whole thing. Well, may the Lord help us. Shall we pray? Now, Lord Jesus, we lift up our hearts to thee, and although we've ended on a very somber and dark note, we pray that thou wouldst cause that hope of thy coming to burn within our hearts. For, Lord, if it is true that the Antichrist must shortly appear, then it is even more true that thou must shortly come. And Lord, if Antiochus Epiphanes came, we praise thee that not very long afterwards the Lord Jesus Christ came. Now Lord, let that hope of thy coming burn in our hearts and let that blessed hope purify every one of us that we may be purified, we may wash our raiments in the blood of the Lamb and make them white. And maybe those, dear Lord, who through thy grace overcome. Write, Lord, these lessons upon our hearts, even the youngest of us, even if we haven't understood so much. Write the lessons we pray upon our hearts, and we ask it in thy name.